Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Sally Mercedes. I am very excited to be joining you today. Thank you for being here. Reading is a huge part of my life. I read a lot all throughout the year. And I like checking in with myself usually around halfway through and then, of course, at the end or the start of the year to see how I can make my reading experience better. I'm not particularly motivated by the number of books that I read or the number of pages I read or the number of hours I listen to. I do set a book number goal at the beginning of the year, but it doesn't guide my reading at all. I just kind of do it to have it there and because I like numbers. (laughs) But for me, reading is something that I do to have fun, to learn more about myself and the world around me and to grow as a person. And I tend to set reading goals that enhance those things for me. And I adjust along the way based on how my reading year is going and how I'm feeling um, and kind of what my trends have been up to that point. I'm not talking about a goal like read 50 books this year. I mean, you do you, you have fun with that goal. (laughs) And if that's motivating to you and that enhances your reading life, freaking go for it. I love that for you. But I'm talking more things like read more books I own this year or read more translated works or read by more indigenous authors or read more horror, things like that. For me, the goals themselves tend to be super specific, but then I don't usually assign a numerical target to them so that reading can still feel fun and light and not hyper-competitive or capitalistic. I actually don't even call them goals anymore. I call them my reading desires, but that's a whole other conversation that I'm having with myself (laughs) and will spare you today, but maybe I'll share in the future, just really trying to like uncapitalisticize my life. You know, divest from capitalism (laughs) in a way that doesn't feel as heavy. Anyway, we won't get into that today. I thought that it might be interesting and maybe fun to go through my process with you of how I reflect on my reading and how I create or clarify my goals in case you set these kinds of goals for yourself and you want to check in with yourself or maybe you don't set these kinds of goals for yourself and you're curious and maybe you want to try. It's not rocket science at all. It's super basic. I'm sure you go through something similar yourself, but I, you know, still I like knowing the way that other people read and assess their reading. So I assume other people like it as well. I geek out over these things. I'm going to go through the steps in my process and then offer some examples so that you can see kind of how I then adjust my goals moving forward. It's just four steps, very simple. I start by looking through my reading stats and the list of books that I've read so far in the year, or if I'm doing this at the end of the year, all the books that I read that year. 
I do this to see what I've been enjoying and not enjoying. So I do look at like my star ratings, but I do also just look at them in terms of the general experience and things that can't be quantified. So maybe I rated a book two and a half stars, but it was a book club book and we had such a fun discussion about it, something like that. So I take a look at both, both things, qualitative and quantitative. Step two is simply reviewing my reading goals for the year, either again, like the ones that I've set for this year, or if it's the end of the year, kind of the ones that I've set usually for the last couple of years. And then I take a look at what are the books that I've read to meet each one of those. I do this by creating a private reading challenge in the story graph, because then I can create one challenge or like one task. I forget what they call them, <laughs> but I can create one of those for each reading goal and then add books to that task or that challenge, whatever the terminology is that I'm forgetting in this moment. I can add it to those as I read throughout the year. But you could easily track this in your planner or your calendar or your reading journal, your bullet journal, wherever you'd like, and just kind of see like, oh, which books have I read that the vibe with this, with this task or this goal. The next step is the most important step for me personally, which is reevaluating why I set that goal and whether or not I'm meeting the intention of that goal. And I'll get into that a little bit in one of my examples because it was so clearly illustrated this year. And then step four is adjusting the goals, you know, so removing things that aren't working, adding goals, maybe just deciding like, yeah, no, these are, these are great. I'm going to keep doing these things. So I went through this process myself right before preparing for this episode because I wanted to see, you know, what's up so I can share with you real things. And on paper, I'm doing great. Looking at my stats, my ratings this year, my genre breakdown, all of that, and looking at my private reading challenge on the story graph, I'm right on track with most of my goals, but there are some things that I wanna change so I can really make the most of my reading, which is, interest, is an interesting place to be in because I'm actually on paper having the best reading year of my life. <laughs> A lot of these are just how I'm feeling about certain goals and whether or not they still feel good to me. And what I mean when I say I'm having the best year of my life is, I'm like having the year that I've always aspired to, which is that looking at my star breakdown, star rating breakdown, most of the books fall under five stars. Then the second highest category is four and a half stars, then four stars and, you know, all the way down to two and a half stars. I've yet to rate anything below two and a half stars, which is wild for me. <laughs> um, I have to assume it's partially because I've been DNFing more consistently and I love that. I still, like I said, I was feeling like some of my goals, I wasn't really getting to the intention behind them. So here's my first example. One of my goals this year is to read more translated works. And in looking at my reading challenge, I've read five translated works this year, which is great. But I noticed that all of them were translated from Japanese, which for me kind of defeats the point because one of the reasons I set this goal was to read about experiences from different types of people from all around the world. If I'm only reading translated works that are translated from Japanese, I mean, yes, of course, like there's diversity in like different types of like Japanese people and experiences and some have been from women and some have been from men, but it's still like not getting to my true intention behind it. 
So I went ahead and added a couple of books to my TBR to help diversify that a bit and keep enriching my reading experience. Another goal I set for myself this year was to read what I call backburner books. So these are books that have been on my TBR for several years. I've actually tried doing this for the last few years, and usually at the end of the year, I've only read one of those books. So <laughs> going into this year, when I set this goal, I told myself that if a book had been on my TBR for five or more years, and I hadn't read it by the end of the year, I was going to remove it from my TBR. But something that I'm realizing from looking at my reading habits so far this year is that I'm having a great time reading books that I've acquired or learned about over the last couple of years. This makes sense because our reading tastes and preferences evolve over time, but I was thinking about it and like, I want to have more of that experience. I don't want to force myself to read books I was interested in five years ago just because they seemed interesting at the time. <laughs> and like, to be fair, they still seem interesting now. Obviously, there's a reason that I've kept them there. I've removed plenty of books from my TBR. But like, I don't know. I just, they've kind of have felt like a weight and like an added stress and like added pressure to my reading that I'm not interested in. So I actually just went ahead and removed this goal altogether and I went ahead and removed these books from my TBR. So unless it's a book that like I'm actually still actively interested in reading, which it ended up being just one or two books, the rest of them I removed, even if I owned them, <laughs> I removed them from my TBR, I unhauled them if I owned them physically, and if they pop into my life again and I'm interested in reading them, I will read them when that happens, but I'm just not going to stress over this anymore. It's, that's not the life I'm trying to live. Then, based on my reading stats so far this year, there are a couple of goals that I actually am adding. So, for example, I am loving reading more graphic novels than usual. I mean, I've been reading graphic novels not that much, but like at least a couple of years since college. But like, I don't know, like me, I, maybe I'm in my nonfiction and romance graphic novel era <laughs> and this is I'm I'm living this is working really well for me so I'm gonna focus on picking up more of those because they add a lot to my reading life and I just love them so much it's actually if I look at my all-time stats on the story graph which like shout out to the story graph for their stats if I look at my all-time stats my highest rated genre is graphic novels I almost exclusively rate those four and a half or five stars so like, love that for me. <laughs> so gonna focus on that. That's a, a goal that I'm adding. I also recently loved Wicked Beauty by Katie Robert and I'm prioritizing more poly romance I needed in my life. That's just like, it wasn't even, I mean, it was on my radar. I even own a couple of poly romance novels, but I just hadn't gotten to them. <laughs> See, previous <laughs> five years ago, removing them from a TBR situation, but I'm really gonna, try to prioritize those because I loved that experience. I love being queer. I love being poly. I love reading about it. So like, let's do it. Another goal that I'm adding, which is something I've never set as a goal before, is rereading books. I realized that part of why I'm having such a great reading year is because I haven't been afraid to reread old favorite books, even old books that like maybe they weren't favorites, but I really enjoyed them. I think that especially when I'm getting into a reading slump where I've kind of slowed down in my reading, picking one of these up is what has saved me from a reading slump and kind of reinvigorated me. I like the comfort of rereading a book that I love, but I also like using it as a way to see how I've grown as a reader and as a person. 
because like I'm always taken back to that time that I read it for the first time. Like I've now read Rebecca probably five or six times. I first read it in high school and every single reading experience is like ingrained in my memory as just being such a different part of my life. So I think that I'm going to add a reading goal to reread one, maybe two books each month. So like actually actively try to do that instead of just kind of accidentally doing it and just see how that goes. Like see how that works for me. Do I love it? Do I hate it? Is it necessary? We're going to try it and see. Maybe at the end of the year, I'll be updating y'all and letting you know how that went. So that's that for my process and some of my examples to go along with it. And I would love to hear from you. How's your reading going this year? Is there anything you want to change about your reading? How can you have your best reading year yet? Do you set these types of reading goals? How's that going for you? Let me know. Slide into my DMs. You can reach me on Twitter, Instagram at Sally Simply and let me know. Have a blast reading this year. An accident claimed her daughter's lives. Her husband's life hangs in the balance and Rue feels like she's losing her mind. A brand new psychological thriller from author Eve S. Evans. Available for pre-order today. As Rue tries to figure out how to be alone in the family home, strange noises, voices, and shadows reveal themselves to her. More questions bubble to the surface. Are Rue's daughters haunting her? If so, why? And why can't she remember what happened when they went off the bridge into the icy water below? Beneath the Water, a psychological thriller. Available on Amazon June 29, 2022 by author Eve S. Evans. Hi everyone, Renee here. So before we get into Mariquita's fantastic and timely interview, I wanted to remind you that all genders can get pregnant and therefore access to abortion is not just a women's issue, but everyone's issue. This book and this interview covered today focuses on cis women's experiences, and that's fine, but a gentle nudge is sometimes necessary to use inclusive language as we continue to fight for our right to reproductive freedom. Our feminism at Feminist Book Club isn't perfect, nor should you expect it to be. After all, perfectionism is a symptom of white supremacy. We're sometimes going to get things wrong, and so are you. Be open to the wisdom in everyone's story and recognize that we're doing the best we can and we will never be able to cover everyone's perspective. I mean, we're a small team of two (laughs) running 95% of this business. You may hear from what seems like dozens of contributors, but they're just contributors. The day-to-day operations falls on two of us and we are giving it all we can. I have literally dedicated my life (laughs) to this. So thank you for listening, for allowing us to explore nuanced issues, and for being our comrades in this fight for liberation. Now, on to the interview. (laughs) Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am joined here today by visual artist, filmmaker, and author Anne Fessler. Anne has worked extensively with stories that deal with women and the impact that myths, stereotypes, and mass media images have on their lives and intimate relationships. Today, we are discussing her 2006 book, The Girls Who Went Away, The Hidden History of Women Who Surrendered Children for Adoption in the Decades Before Roe v. Wade. And I wish with all my heart we weren't here talking about this at such a dark time. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. 
So you go, uh, you go into this in the book, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your work collecting these stories and what motivated you. So in about 1989, I think it was a long time ago, I was uh, at an art opening and a woman approached me thinking that I was the daughter she had given up for adoption 40 years earlier. She thought I looked like the perfect combination of herself and the father of her child. And so she approached me and as she brought me this information, I actually started to have a physical reaction because um, I am an adoptee. Uh, I had never planned to search for my mother. And the idea that I could just, I could be now facing her was pretty overwhelming. And so we started talking and comparing dates and it turned out that her daughter was uh, born, I think it was a, you know, a month and a year or something before or after me. So we were in the same era, the same time and it was only one state apart and women used to go across state lines a lot to hide and you know, go to maternity homes and so forth. And so she was pretty convinced that I was her daughter but I had a lot of information. My mother was an adoptee as well. My adoptive mother was an adoptee. So they were very open about my information and I was really convinced that I was not her daughter. But what happened is it precipitated a conversation about her experience. And I felt very informed about adoption at the time. Growing up as an adoptee, like I said, being having an adoptive mother who was adopted. So I felt informed and I was a feminist and felt like I was really informed about women's history. And I had never heard stories of women who surrendered children for adoption. So she went on to describe this tremendous lifelong sense of loss over her child. And, I, you know, I thought it was, it was like a light bulb moment. It was, um, of course, why would losing a child through adoption be any different than losing a child in, in any other way. You know, in our culture, we talk about losing a child is the worst thing that can happen to you. And if even if a woman has a miscarriage, you know, or a stillborn child, we come around her, we grieve with her, there's, there's a tremendous outpouring of support. And in fact, the, the women who went through this and lost a child, not only did not get any support, they were told to never talk about it again, to never tell future husbands. They were essentially fallen women, used goods, all the negative stereotypes you can imagine. And so they had essentially kept their secrets. And so I'm hearing this for the first time because these women had kept their secrets. And so we spent the rest of the evening talking. And at the end of the evening, uh, I thought, you know, I wonder why I have not heard this story before. You know, maybe it's just her. And so I sort of at that moment decided that I would, I had projects in the works and so forth, but I decided that I was going to look into this and see if I could hear from other women who went through this experience and see if, if their experience was the same as what this woman was describing. And some years later, I initiated an oral history project to collect, preserve, and disseminate the stories of these women. And that came about because I went on to do some projects that were already in the works that were more, more autobiographical about my own experiences as an adoptee. 
And people sort of started coming out of the woodwork around these exhibitions. And I set up special places for people to leave their own stories because I didn't want it to be just about my story. And I started hearing from more and more women. And that's when I knew that I really needed to uh, find a way to do this, to find women. I didn't know if they talked to me. I didn't know how to find them. I, this was very beginning stages. And ultimately that led to starting this oral history project. And that led to the book and a film that I did also about topic. Yeah, it's um, beautiful and it's heartbreaking and it is shocking how little really it is is known about it. Uh, we do talk a lot. Um, I guess I shouldn't say we there's a lot of talk about adoption as a being a more like, quote unquote, compassionate alternative to abortion, especially lately and especially in anti-choice circles. But your stories really underscore uh, how devastating adoption can be for birth parents, especially in situations where they were compelled to relinquish their children and, and especially without adequate emotional support, right. which a lot of these folks dealt with. Yeah, there was also at this time, and my research was really in the time between World War II and the passage of Roe. And I framed it in that time period because that's when there was an unprecedented boom in adoption that started after World War II and really peaked in 1970 and then started going down. And there were all kinds of reasons for that, which I talk about in the book, but very complicated and essentially, you know, tremendous upward mobility for middle-class families after World War II. And the thing that could sort of send you downward in the eyes of your community was having a pregnant daughter. And so mm -hmm. it was a reflection on your parenting skills. If your daughter got pregnant, the women at that time were supposed to be saving it for marriage. Uh, only about half were, in, even in the 50s, well, <laughs> the 60s. But in fact, there were more and more pregnancies. Uh, more and more women were being sent away to these maternity homes. An entire system of more than 200 maternity homes developed. A lot of them were outgrowths of previous organizations that were there to help fallen women. And they adapted to this new surge in babies that families really wanted to hide. I mean, they wanted to hide the fact that their daughter was pregnant. And so they sent their daughters away to these homes for unwed mothers uh, to give birth and come back and lie and tell everybody they were away. You know, they had a wonderful opportunity to study in Europe or they were taking care of a sick aunt. They all had cover stories, but there was no one in this process that was really there to give them a kind of overview of their options. Their families, their, the clergy, the adoption workers were all pressing for them to adopt out their children. And at that time, they weren't informed, as many are today, they weren't informed of their rights. They weren't informed that they had a certain amount of time to change their mind. And all these women were first-time mothers, so they had no idea what was coming. They get put on a kind of conveyor belt towards adoption. And by the time the baby's born, they feel differently. They want to raise the baby. Basically, they're told it's too late. Yeah. You talked a lot about the physical and the emotional repercussions um, yeah. on these individuals and the, and how those feelings sort of, and symptoms, it, physical health symptoms yeah. persisted and sometimes worsened. We really, as a society, really failed, failed them, did not provide them with information about um, services that were available to them, even if they chose, you know, to, to continue parenting their child. And that just manifested so much grief. Yeah, absolutely. And it was also a time when it wasn't really the women that didn't want their child, society didn't want their children in yeah. the sense that 
at that time, before uh, Title IX, for example, people think of it as Title IX is Educational Amendment Act that leveled the playing field for women in sports. But in fact, it had a huge impact on, on mothers because what happened is up until that time, up until 1972, if you, if the school learned, if a school, high school or even colleges learned that you were pregnant, you were immediately expelled. And if you were an unwed mother and pregnant, and if you kept your child, you could not return. So that was the end of your education, the end of your life as you knew it. And that was right at the time when a lot of women were going to college. You know, of course, as I said, post-World War II, this, the baby boom generation were all of a sudden, a lot of things were opening up for women. But yet the, a lot of these, the laws and the conditions, social conditions at the time lagged behind. And so they were prevented from taking advantage of these various opportunities. So by 1972, when Title IX is enacted, they can stay in school. They can mm -hmm. finish their education and also raise a child if they want to. So that made a huge difference. Um, you say in the book that we need to include the voices of surrendering mothers in ongoing debates about um, adoption policy and law, reproductive rights, and sex education. How do you think that would affect the discourse now? Well, I think that for some reason, people don't believe that women who surrender children for adoption experience that tremendous loss that we were talking about. Somehow, I guess they believe that all babies surrendered are, in quotes, unwanted, which is was the party line, you know, at that time. Yeah. So adoptive parents are hearing these are unwanted babies. The mothers are saying, I want my baby, but the agency between them uh, kept everybody separate. So, you know, no one's the wiser. When you hear the the experiences and the, the emotional toll that this has taken on women who adopt out children. It doesn't make it look quite as attractive as uh, the simple solution. I mean, it's being talked about now like you're giving away an old pair of shoes, you know, yeah. just go through the pregnancy. There's a lot of people who want to adopt. You know, women are not broodmares. I'm sorry. Uh, that, their role is not to produce children for people who cannot have children. It's their child. Um, and in the case of so many of the women that, that I interviewed, as I said, by the time the baby was born, they were mothers. They loved that child. They wanted that child. They wanted to raise that child. And they were not permitted to raise that child. They were considered unfit because they were unwed. Yeah. And it was, you know, millions of women. This is not a small number of women that this has affected and it has lifelong consequences. Uh, some of the women suffered PTSD, had horrible depression. They worried. One woman talked about worrying every single day about where her child was and whether her child was in a good family, had a good life. Four of the women I interviewed had themselves sterilized because they could not face going through that again. And at the time, birth control that women could control, the pill, was not available to them. And that was through another Supreme Court decision that made, you know, in 1972. So things start to shift from around 1970, 72, 70, and then Roe in 73. But the numbers started going down even before Roe because some things opened up for yeah. them. It's a tremendous loss no different than any other loss of a child. And this is something that people have not really reckoned with and that really changes how easy adoption looks as a solution. And many of the women you interviewed described these feelings of powerlessness and lack of autonomy, which is 
you know, resurfacing now as people everywhere have lost their reproductive rights, you know, especially particularly people with uteruses. And <laughs> there's an intense collective anticipatory grief, not even anticipatory and like a lot of real current situations. Mm -hmm. How do you think the landscape might change going forward and, and how can we support the individuals, the children and the families who will be impacted? And, and I don't expect you to have, you know, the golden key <laughs> yeah, right. to this. I just wonder your perspective on that. Mm -hmm. Well, Certainly, it's important that women are supported in their parenting, but this country doesn't seem to um, be very good at providing the support they need. Child care, for one, for a big, a big one. So this is one of the problems these women faced. If their families weren't willing to help them, and the families, of course, trying to maintain their middle class status, did not want her to bring that baby home. There was basically no child support at that time. So there was no way for her to work and make money to raise her child and raise her child at the same time. You would need family support. Now, I guess, you know, certainly uh, child care, health care, birth control, of course. Let's stop this before it's a problem with birth control. But so many women live in areas where there's very little access to good health care especially rural women, poor women. It's difficult to get to clinics. There aren't, you know, there aren't very many places where they can um, easily access good healthcare. And this is another, uh, an, an additional problem. So there's all kinds of ways we can support women in family planning, but of course, family planning, the place to go in the 60s and 70s and 80s and onward for family planning to get your pills without judgment and prevent pregnancy if you desired that or to terminate pregnancy if you desired that was Planned Parenthood. And you see how many of those clinics are having to shut down. Women need support and I don't know if they're going to get it. Well, we are pretty much at time. So I just thought I would give an opportunity for you to direct folks to any resources or organ organizations or materials that you think people might find useful or enlightening or supportive. Right. Well, of course, my book, <laughs> <laughs> The Girls Who Went Away. Yes. So they, uh, you know, the old phrase about knowing the past, knowing history, so we don't repeat it. And uh, to really understand how adoption affects women and not look at it as the easy solution for women, because it is not an easy solution. It's a devastating solution for so many women. And I think if for a woman out there who has already surrendered a child and is struggling because she doesn't know that she can connect with other women who have also gone through this and who have been struggling, there's some organizations I would highly recommend one called Concerned United Birth Parents. They have, you know, online, it's a membership, inexpensive, you can join, you can be part of online chat rooms, because so many of these women felt that there was something wrong with them because they kept grieving the loss of their child because they were told they wouldn't. They were told they'd move on and they'd forget, nobody forgets a child, and that they would have other children and everything would be fine. And when, when they couldn't forget and they continued to grieve, they assumed something was wrong with them because they couldn't get over it in quotes. It's really helped a lot of women to be able to connect with other women who've gone through the same thing. Women who, you know, might be in even in their 60s, 70s, and 80s today who were part of this era. And so I would I would recommend that organization. I think there are other resources also listed in my book. Well thank you. And thank you so much for sharing these stories, for collecting and sharing these stories. They're uh, so vital and heartbreaking and in places so healing. 
like I said earlier, adoption so often used as a counterattack in discussions about reproductive rights and access to abortion. But the reality reality of it is more complicated and nuanced. And like so many other areas in this country related to the care and provision for children, women, birthing parents, uh, it's lacking, deeply lacking in support. So I do appreciate you joining us to talk about that and about your book, The Girls Who Went Away. Quickly, uh, where can folks find you and your work on the web? I have a site, a website called annfessler.com, easy to remember. That can direct you to the book website and to other projects. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anne. And I'm Margita Guerrera. You can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. I am only there sporadically, but I am there on occasion. Uh, thank you, Anne. Again, this is just a, a wonderful addition to the discourse. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.